Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. And this is the second episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed that is going to be focusing on the amazing performers who are coming back to our stage to perform with us at Tragic Christmas. Tragic Christmas is our official relaunch. We haven't had a live show since we came back from the Edinburgh Festival and live is the heart of stand-up tragedy and that heart pumps blood out into the rest of the body of stand-up tragedy which are our podcast our fanzine and and our video content which we're going to be starting up again fully and properly in december but the place that we collect all of this tragedy together is on our stage if you come to tragic christmas you'll be coming to a place where we express all that we find tragic about this festive season and get all of the sad feelings out of the way so that we can then celebrate the positives of being with friends, of being with family and remind ourselves what we love about Christmas. It's going to be having both sides of it. We are going to be sharing on our social media during the 12 days of Tragic Christmas various different hints and ideas about the performances that are going to be coming on the 12th day of Tragic Christmas which is when we are performing at the Dogstar in Brixton. So come along to the 12th day of tragedy and be prepared to cry until you laugh, to laugh until you cry, to think about some different ideas and to share together a communal experience. There's only two weeks left to go, so get your tickets. They're available online. They're £5 in advance or they're £7 on the door if you go along on the day. And the fanzine is £2 and you can get that in advance if you like as well. So here's the official lineup, most of whom are old friends of ours. So we've got Beck Hill doing comedy, Steve Cross doing tragic stand-up, which will have some crossover with the academic or science world. We've got The Sound of the Ladies, otherwise known as Martin Ostwick, performing some sad songs. We've got Lucy Ayrton doing spoken word. We've got James Mackay reciting a tragic Victorian story. We've got Radcliffe Royds telling true stories of sad Christmases past. We've got the author of Big Heart, which was made into a Radio 4 spoken word sitcom and an amazing one-man show, Richard Tyrone Jones. We've got Superbard, who has told me that he's going to be trying to perform the saddest Christmas story ever told. And we've got our headline act, Felicity Ward, who is joining Stand Up Tragedy for the first time, and we are really looking forward to welcoming her to our stage. We've got me. I'll be going through all of my worst Christmas experiences and singing you a Christmas song and and the audience will be sharing in the tragedy because they're going to be joining Kit Lovelace who will be on the keyboards singing together some tragic hymns. Stand Up Tragedy team member Liam Wilday will be creating some festive live art in the room. We'll be getting your Christmas tragedies to put on our tragedy tree and our favourite of those tragedies will be featured in the next edition of our stand-up tragedy fanzine and Liam who I just mentioned is the editor of that fanzine. As I said earlier on the fanzine will bring together other forms of tragedy that can't be performed and 
We are always looking for new pieces of writing or pictures that we can use in this fanzine. If you'd like to share some tragedy with some people, we would really welcome it. If you would like to send along a submission, send it to upstandingtragedy at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook or on Twitter. And if you want to share your tragic Christmas thoughts, why not use the hashtag tragic Xmas? We'll be doing some ourselves. So that's enough from me. Let's get on to our performers. In the last episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed, we reminded ourselves of the brilliant Lucy Ayrton, The Sound of the Ladies, Beck Hill and Radcliffe Royds. We like all sorts of tragedy at Stand Up Tragedy we want, and we wanted to show this by giving you some comedy, true stories, poetry and music. First, let's have something very traditionally Christmassy. Think Dickensian Christmas as you listen to our Victorian reciter James Mackay. When we were at the Edinburgh Festival, we were fortunate enough to be able to see a couple of his one-man recital shows and he is brilliant as I'm sure you're going to agree. So here he is performing for us on stage at the Edinburgh Festival. Good evening everybody. Normally I like to come to stand up tragedy when it's on down in Hackney and cheer everybody up by reciting really grim passages of the Old Testament. And I've got another booking in this run up in Edinburgh, so I'll probably do that uh, next week. But I am here properly doing my show, The New Popular Reciter, which is classics of Victorian recitation, which is hence uh, the tail coat. So I thought I'd give you something relevant to that. And I thought I'd give you something relevant to where we are, because this is by the Scottish poet James Thompson. Now, you are shrieking at this point. James, you've made a mistake. The Scottish poet James Thompson is 18th century. He's not Victorian. That is the James Thompson from Jedburgh who moved to London and wrote the lyrics to Rule Britannia. And that's not tragic much. (laughs) This James Thompson is the 19th century James Thompson from Port Glasgow who moved to London to win fame and fortune in the literary world, uh, died the age of 29, uh, suffering from acute alcoholism, uh, opium addiction, and tuberculosis, having achieved absolutely nothing except this small volume. <coughs> the City of Dreadful Night, ladies and gentlemen. Possibly the most miserable long poem. This isn't really funny. Don't, don't get ready to laugh. This really is miserable, <laughs> yeah, like it says on the tin. So this is the, uh, the opening. It's quite a long poem. I have read the whole thing before. It takes about two hours to read, and people really don't survive. So uh, I'll just give you the opening, and then maybe a little grim bit of the Old Testament, because I can't resist it. The city is of night, perchance of death, but certainly of night. For never there can come the lucid morning's fragrant breath after the dewy dawning's cold grey air. The moon and stars may shine with scorn or pity. The sun has never visited that city, for it dissolveth in the daylight fair. Dissolveth like a dream of night away, though present in distempered gloom of thought and deadly weariness of heart all day. But when a dream night after night is brought throughout a week, and such weeks, few or many, recur each year. For several years can any discern that dream from real life in aught? For life is but a dream whose shapes return 
some frequently, some seldom, some by night and some by day, some night and day. We learn the while all change and many vanish quite in their recurrence with recurrent changes, a certain seeming order. Where this ranges, we count things real, such as memories might. A river girds the city west and south, the main north channel of a broad lagoon regurging with the salt tides from the mouth. Waste marshes shine and glister to the moon for leagues, then moorland black, then stony ridges. Great piers and causeways, many noble bridges connect the town and islet suburbs strewn. Upon an easy slope it lies at large and scarcely overlaps the long curved crest which swells out two leagues from the river march. A trackless wilderness rolls north and west, savannas, savage woods, enormous mountains, bleak uplands, black ravines with torrent fountains, and eastward rolls the shipless sea's unrest. The city is not ruinous. Although great ruins of an unremembered past, will others of a few short years ago more sad are found within its precincts vast. The street lamps always burn, but scarce a casement in house or palace front from roof to basement doth glow or gleam athwart the murk air cast. The street lamps burn amidst the baleful glooms, amidst the soundless solitudes immense of ranged mansions dark and still as tombs. The silence which benumbs or strains the sense fulfills with awe the soul's despair, unweeping. Myriads of habitants are ever sleeping or dead or fled from nameless pestilence. Yet, as in some necropolis you find perchance one mourner to a thousand dead, so there, worn faces that look deaf and blind like tragic masks of stone, with weary tread, each wrapped in his own doom, they wander, wander, or sit fordone and desolately ponder through sleepless hours with heavy, drooping head. Mature men chiefly, few in age or youth, a woman rarely, now and then a child, a child. If here, the heart sons turn sick with Ruth to see a little one from birth defiled or lame or blind, as preordained to language through youthless life. Think how it bleeds with anguish to meet one erring in that homeless wild. They often murmur to themselves. They speak to one another seldom, for their woe broods maddeningly inwardly and scorns to wreak itself abroad. And if at whiles it grow to frenzy which must rave, none heeds the clamour, unless there waits some victim of like glamour to rave in turn, who lends attentive show. The city is of night, but not of sleep. There, sweet sleep is not for the weary brain. The pitiless hours, like years and ages, creep. A night seems termless hell. This dreadful strain of thought and consciousness which never ceases, or which some moments stupor but increases. This, worse than woe, makes wretches there insane. They leave all hope behind who enter there. One certitude 
while sane they cannot leave. One anodyne for torture and despair, the certitude of death, which no reprieve can put off long, and which, divinely tender, but waits the outstretched hand to promptly render that draught whose slumber nothing can bereave. Footnote. <laughs> Footnote. Though the garden of thy life be wholly waste, the sweet flowers withered, the fruit trees barren, over its wall hang ever the rich dark clusters of the vine of death, within easy reach of thy hand, which may pluck of them when it will. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the new popular reciter. Come see me at 10 to 10 tonight. Next, we have a performance from the Hackney Attic by Richard Tyrone Jones, a very talented and essential member of the spoken word scene. December sees the 10th year anniversary of his utter spoken word collective. Richard had a brilliant 2013, which saw the adaptation of Richard Tyrone Jones Has a Big Heart go out on Radio 4. Here's a piece of that show which captures just what stand-up tragedy is all about, taking a very, very sad situation and finding the humour in it so that the audiences can maybe relate that humour and that sadness to their lives. Luckily is probably the wrong word, uh, but uh, my, my first poem, uh, which is a new one, is actually uh, not so much about me, but it is about uh, child abuse in uh, a private school in the 90s, uh, and that's the 1990s, not the 1890s, and it's called True Story. This is a story about a boy named Andy and a man named Story. I've not changed the names because both were guilty, but they weren't always. 2009. You have a friend request. Andrew Morgan. Classics. Old school SWAT. Choir boy. Me and my best mate Cloder used to take the piss, call him Morgana Le Fay, until we realised that, yes, he was actually gay. Or gays did exist. And it was more than just a playground cuss. We were... 11, 12, Wolverhampton Grammar, centre of excellence. This teacher story was as big as one. An angry, bald bullock. He'd throw tantrums in class, bang desks into us with his belly. Scalp red as about to burst, then the next day, sweetness and light. Praising us, he'd chat, sing bash on chaps, have pretty boys up to sit on his lap. We didn't know which was worse. But you're 11, 12. You know no better. And some boys liked the attention. Very few went on to do Latin at GCSE. Story once gave a lift home to both Cloder and Andy. Dropped Cloder off first, though he lived further away. And when Story drove off with Andy up front, staring back at Cloder, forlorn, scared, abandoned, leaving him safe on his front step with nascent suspicions, regretting he'd not just asked Andy in for a cuppa. 
15 years later, regretting he'd not forced the issue. And I can't imagine what happened between them alone. Who'd want to? Maybe the emotions were the most obscene thing. Because I don't know what was missing from Andy's home, but maybe Story even spun in the yarn that he loved him. A few years later, one of Story's classics friends from another grammar was arrested in Thailand for sex with minors. Looked like the whole thing might blow up, but our school's headmaster, Trafford, was Story's old mucker, so he retired quietly to look after mother. Andy went on to Cambridge to be a lawyer. I thought maybe it never did him any harm. Then when, three years ago, we saw just a few messages on his wall, closest friends, saying less than expected, it took some persistence to find out what had happened. On Andy's laptop, 1,290 child porn images. And perhaps at his trial, there might have been some answers, some kind of narrative before the court's bitter verdict, but I doubt his defence would have called Story as a witness. So the night before the trial, no bail, but Andy bailed, nonetheless, draped the hemp around his neck, and leapt. I can't imagine the loneliness and guilt he must have felt. I doubt if he ever touched children himself, but you collude if you view the JPEGs, and people will say, if you don't call them beasts and jug them in prison, you're simply encouraging them. But humans are just self-replicating viruses. In school, in love, in prisons or choirs, we just copy whatever behaviour surrounds us. Whatever you do to people comes to be normal. And ignoring the causes won't cure the sickness. And understanding pedos doesn't mean you forget their victims. It means remembering how they'll all grow up themselves, remembering how Andy was that boy of 11, 12... And when we can't imagine, we must understand there must be a better way to end the cycle of abuse than a noose. And let this sad story be a beginning, not an end. As this one's for Andy. Suicide. Pederast. My friend. Cheers. Yeah, I think um, that anything anything after that one is uh, probably going to seem a little bit uh, less less tragic uh, in comparison. I'm not uh, not quite on my usual uh, rip roaring form. I'm uh, recovering because because the heart failure was all caused by uh, an irregular heartbeat, and that uh, irregular heartbeat has just been corrected by keyhole surgery. Uh, where they just burnt, burnt all the errant bits off my heart. Uh, but it meant that they had to go in through my groin. So I've got a, a massive, big... Well, it's, it's the only purple patch um, that my groin has ever seen, really. Huge bruise uh, where they went in uh, there. And, uh, and it's, it's given me terrible migraines as well, migraines as well which I'm just uh, recovering from. But I really shouldn't complain uh, because, well, come to the tragedy... 
in, in my own life uh, now. Well, I say it's a tragedy. Uh, this poem is about uh, my grandmother's dementia, but uh, it's not so much a tragedy dementia as a more of a statistical and biological inevitability, but um, still sad. Visiting time. This skeletal Michael Finnegan in a gown is all time's winds have left of old gran. Sharon Stone nappy flash. Water retention has inverted her legs. Thigh-like calves, veal calf thighs. It's like that film Memento, you remember, but with just the one death. Her memory's camera zooms towards her birth. The film's end. And every five minutes, a new time traveller teleports into her body, the pod from 68, 67, 65, and we explain it all again. What year is this? Role-playing. I'm her nephew, son-in-law, sisters, our daughters, she's got to see her dad. Playing happy families, the old maid shuffles the pack. The songs she sings are from the war. Her vision's gone, can't see past 1944. Can't even watch TV, even if she could. At three pounds per day, they're all turned off and to the wall. Neglected patience. These screens fade to white dots, leaving only an afterimage pressed on the retina. A song stuck in the memory of those about to leave repeats, all just repeats. Visiting time is over. Cheers. Uh, the thing about dementia, if you've been lucky enough not to have any relatives um, suffer from it, is that uh, it very much kind of takes your psyche and, and, and opens it up like a Russian doll and, and, and takes away all, all of the kind of politeness and civility and the social rules uh, that you've learnt. And then a little bit further in, it takes away your ability to remember people's names or, or what they've been doing and, and then just really boils it down to the centre of the doll and you really find out what that person was like right in the centre. And my nan was all right, actually. She was um, pretty, pretty happy and used to wander down the wards in the hospital with another old lady, pretending that they were... Pretending, imagining, kind of projecting that they were uh, going to wait for a bus at the bottom of the, uh, the corridor and go off on an adventure. And uh, it was actually quite nice. Um, Unfortunately, as I say, it's a genetic inevitability. Uh, my mum now has a um, very similar kind of dementia, Benson syndrome, uh, which is the same uh, kind of dementia that uh, Terry Pratchett has, where you kind of forget the, the words for things and you lose all your motor skills first, but it still maintains your interrelationships and she can still thankfully remember who people are and, and, and that she loves them and, uh, and little things that they've been up to and, and still, are still a joy. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of pairing down from the outer personality down to the inner, um, that, while, it, while, it was while it's been happening to my mum, uh, has been, it was having the same or a similar effect 
uh, to my dad as well, but not directly, not through dementia. My dad, uh, throughout last year, um, started to have a complete mental breakdown, partly caused by, I think, um, the, the fact that he, he was always quite Asperger's, a very manly man who uh, used to um, find a lot of his, his own self-worth and value in, in physical activities like managing football and in going out and earning money. He was very much a kind of 1950s kind of guy. And so when he couldn't help my mum and he couldn't accept that, and also he had to have uh, a couple of um, uh, hip replacements himself, and he had a lot of difficulty... Um, dealing with the, the change in roles and uh, basically it, 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 it's at times like these um, Bryony's been kind of interviewing all of the artists you know what, what do you get out of writing about tragedy and I think that writing about tragedy does really help you make sense of it all and, and stop you from going mad really or maybe you know, there's still just as much madness but you just pour it out down onto the page I think um, my dad never had any of that and was um, swiftly reduced to wandering around the house, not wanting to go out in case anybody saw him and kind of hitting himself and um, uh, shouting, we had everything, but now we've lost everything. Um, and we've got nothing now. And uh, I've ruined your mum's life and taking everything onto his shoulders. And um, a week before Christmas last year, um, he, we thought he'd been getting better, but he was just kind of hiding uh, how bad he was and uh, he hung himself from the banister and my sister found him just kind of dangling there like a fucked up Christmas decoration and um, the weirdest thing when you're dealing with all the, the admin um, of someone's death um, the thing that struck me the most or my, my sister which he somehow managed to maintain a sense of humour about it all, all the stuff that we've had to do, all the paperwork, she's put in a, a folder with dadmin written on it. <laughs> the thing that struck with me is not the, the funeral. I, I didn't cry very much at the funeral. I didn't cry very much when we were scattering the ashes. The thing was um, getting rid of his clothes and thinking, what, what should we do with how we get rid of them? And this is um, about that, and it's called Strip Away. Not much. Six bags, one cardboard box. Of notes, sun hats from red-skinned Cypriot holidays, football manager coats he'd shrunk out of, his silk effect PJs somehow unsoiled. Old hands will sift them, sighing, singing, Matalan, Matalan, Primark, Matalan. His newest watch went to his oldest friend, who'd given him one last gift, for the fire, an away strip. I've kept the belts he didn't snap, a reminder to keep it all together, tight. It's like scattering ashes. We stick them in the boot, look for a nice village with a good view, far enough away no relatives will buy them, make us think, panicked glance, he's somehow back. What's saddest isn't the waste, how man maketh the clothes that their wearer would have urged us to sell them, but how every human feeling is just one spring clean away from not existing.
If I thought of those clothes, hanging there, alone, wondering why he abandoned their warmth, I could almost give them tears. I just shiver. Okay. Well, one more. Um, you don't know what, how, quite how to react at the end of one of my poems, do you? Just, it's just, I don't know, clapping? Or, um, yeah, just a bit of silent weeping, I think. And then I'll come round with a teak pipette, collect those tears, and then fill my pen with them, and write even more sad poems. Like the emotional vampire that all of us poets are. Uh, so, yeah, but I suppose the, the point is not all of this tragedy, but how it affects you. And hopefully what, what you learn from it and, and the, the shifts that it makes within, you know, your soul, if that's not too old-fashioned a word. So here's, here's um, uh, uh, one last poem from uh, the book the book of uh, my show, which is going to uh, be on Radio 4 as a four-part spoken word sitcom in July. It's Sunday, July the 14th, 21st and 28th, 7.15pm, just after The Archers. Uh, so, you know, a, a million people will be listening, apparently, but I know it won't be because of it's me. Uh, it'll be because it's on after the archers. Uh, but um, if you've enjoyed my stuff, um, it's, it's actually a, it's about my heart failure, not anybody else's tragedy. So it's actually a lot funnier. Uh, but anyway, after um, th this is about after um, some of these things had happened, and after uh, I was lying in hospital, not knowing whether I would live or die from heart failure, and oh, the only way to find out whether I did die uh, or not, in fact, is, is to buy this book, which is six pounds. Um, or, or you can get both of my books, uh, Big Heart and uh, Germline, the first one. Oh, often witty, sometimes unsettling, and always smart, according to Tim Key. Uh, you get both of those uh, for 10 quid, or six pounds each. But anyway, uh, back to the spiritualism. Um, I, I had this, if you will, a, a vision. Footprints in the sand. One night, I dreamed... I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times, there was only one. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from pain, anguish, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the hardest, most trying times of my life, there has been only one set of footprints in the sand. Why, my Lord, when I needed you most, did you abandon me? And the Lord replied, Oh, my son, but at those hardest, most trying times of your life, you were being an annoying, self-pitying, sniveling little shit. <laughs> Can you blame me for fucking off? <laughs> yeah, fair enough, Lord, I replied. Thank you very much. Stand of tragedy
Now, there are two more performers from our Tragic Christmas lineup on their way, but before I bring them to you, I need to tell you the most important thing about the show. We are running it for charity. Christmas is a time for giving, and we'll be giving all the proceeds from our tickets and the sale of the fanzine to Arts Emergency. Arts Emergency are an organisation that are devoted to creating alternative old boy networks made up of people of all kinds and all backgrounds who want to make art and want to share and develop knowledge in the humanities co-created by previous stand-up tragedy performer Josie Long. If you would like to donate personally to the cause go over to www artsemergency.org and that will to find out how to do so so you should definitely come along to tragic christmas where you will not only have a good time for three hours but you'll be helping arts emergency to do what they do my name is liz i am the executive producer for stand-up tragedy which means i'm money and logistics and all that good stuff and welcome to the stand-up tragedy podcast You can like us or friend us on Facebook by searching for Stand Up Tragedy. And you can follow us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. That's four like the number four. Or find our website at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. So if that wasn't reason enough to come, here are two more. Steve Cross is passionate about getting us to engage our brains while enjoying the funny side of academia and he brought that vibe with him when he came and joined us on the stand-up tragedy stage up in edinburgh this year hello everybody wasn't that one of the most awkward introductions ever uh, no it's quite nice it's quite nice uh, to have a, a slightly awkward introduction when you've got to come on and, and try and do do science comedy after hearing about people who are deeply in love dying <laughs> unexpected because I mean it's the natural follow-on from something like that isn't it you know jokes where the punchline is pies value to 12 significant figures no uh, so uh, hello 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 it's good you're a very polite crowd you've got Dave I like the fact you all said hello quite often crowds will just cheer kind of incoherently and scream at you when you say hello to them if you say how are you doing they just go mental anyway yes so uh my name's my name's steve cross um uh i i i i ought to describe myself as a science comedian uh i run bright club in london i run science show off i run all sorts of things like that but um i've got kind of sick of science recently so I'd like, I'd like to apologise to the organisers who I promised a whole set of the tragedy of science and climate change and those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I've, I've got sick of science because I've realised that all of science is a lie. <laughs> and the reason I've realised that all of science is a lie is that science is built entirely on maths. And it turns out that maths is a lie. And the reason I know that maths is a lie is that last week I went through the channels on my Freeview box There's a channel four plus one, and there's a channel five, and they're not the same. (laughs) So science is completely a lie. Uh, So I've I've started talking about other things and telling jokes about other things. And one of the weird things that happens when you start standing on stage and trying to be funny and trying to tell stories is that you talk about things in front of a group of strangers that you would never talk about to the people that you know really well who love you. And um, my parents have realised this. So, I I don't tell my parents very much about my life, about my love life, you know, we're different generations. 
um, you know, they're very religious, I'm not. They don't really approve of quite a lot of the decisions that I've taken. They don't really understand the things I'm into, so I don't tell them much about my life. So now they come to my gigs. Uh, they come to my gigs and they, they sit in the front row with a notepad. <laughs> and this has led to but possibly the harshest heckle I have ever had in my life, also the quietest heckle I've ever had in my life, also the only heckle I've ever had in my life from my dad. Uh, I don't think he meant it as a heckle, but I was talking about something, everything went silent, and just loud enough for everyone in the room to hear it, he turned to my mum and went, oh, he's straight. <laughs> So yeah, uh, you end up talking about things that you, you probably shouldn't talk about. So uh, since we're at Stand Up for Tragedy, uh, <coughs> well, I think I've broken someone. <laughs> Do you know my parents? <laughs> no. um, so uh, yeah, since we're at Stand Up for Tragedy, uh, I, I was actually going to talk to you a bit about depression because uh, I've been through periods of, of fairly severe depression in my life. Uh, so I was going to tell you about one of those. So it's kind of a real tragedy, but it weaves into it a number of fictional tragedies. Uh, I'm going to be very strong on where the guiding lines are between my tragedy and the fictional tragedies, because as bad as my tragedy gets is having to live in Newcastle. <laughs> do, we, do we have any Geordies in? Kind of, kind of a Geordie. No, I live there. You live there. <laughs> Isn't it horrible? <laughs> No, I say that. It's, so I, I moved to uh, Newcastle in my mid-twenties, which is the worst time to move to Newcastle. Because anyone with, anyone with two A-levels to rub together fucks off when they're 18, and then they come back when they're 38 to raise their kids. Because everything's cheap and there's loads of space. Uh, so I went there when I was 25, which is the absolute kind of bottom of the population gap there. So I went to Newcastle. I got really unhappy in Newcastle. And what I would do, because I was really unhappy in Newcastle, is I'd go and visit my friends in London. And you know that somewhere is really depressing when the way you cheer yourself up is going to the rat city boy and estate agent infested smog hole that is our capital. And, I, and I, would, I would go down and I'd visit three friends of mine who lived together and they were all girls. And what they would do was try and cheer me up. So one time I was down there and they said, well, no, we'll cheer you up, Steve. We'll take you to see a film. There's a film on called Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> I take it from the laughter that many of you have seen this. Has, has anyone not seen Requiem for a Dream? Okay, don't go and see it. That's all I'm saying. Do not go and see Requiem for a Dream. Now, the way my friends sold the film Requiem for a Dream to me is they said, Steve, uh, Jennifer Connelly's in it. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, in 1986, the film Labyrinth came out. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly was 16, I was 10. I know it's hard to believe, uh, but I was 10 in 1986, and I remember watching Jennifer Connelly. Now, I've told you about the moment when my dad found this out. This is the moment I found this out. I remember watching Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth and thinking, I like girls. I really, really, really like girls. <laughs> right now, I like one specific girl who's a very famous actress and considerably older than me, but that's a start. We'll go from there for the rest of my life. Uh, so for me, you know, Jennifer Connelly is the absolute quintessence of woman and always has been and it represents for me just kind of innocence but desire combined together. She's perfect and unsullied and must never, for instance, be required to end a film, ass to ass with another girl, double ending a dildo the size of a bouncer's arm. That should never happen. 10 year old me should never have to watch that. 
even if he's trapped in the body of 27-year-old me. There is no way he should ever have to see that in real life. So uh, that's the end of, the, of, of Requiem for a Dream. Uh, this is the film my friends have taken me to. Let's not forget to cheer me up. I should say, they had form. Three weeks before I'd gone down to visit them, some of you will remember 2000 and the popular films at the time. Some weeks before I'd gone to visit them and they said, do you know what, Steve? There's a film on with Bjorkin. Shall we go and see that? <laughs> they said, it's a musical with Bjorkin. It's called Dancer in the Dark. That'll cheer you right up. A little bit of a musical with Bjorkin. What they didn't mention, it's a musical where at the very end, they put a bag over Bjork's head and they hang her. Oh. They hang her for crimes she didn't commit. <laughs> it is the most miserable thing in the world. A friend of mine, who's from Leeds, left that film five minutes before the end because it's so incredibly dark. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was the original one, and then they took me to see Requiem for a Dream. And uh, for those of you who don't know Requiem for a Dream, Requiem for a Dream these days is mostly famous for providing music for other films' trailers. So, uh, Lord of the Rings and Sunshine and a number of other things. Because the actual soundtrack for the film doesn't contain anything that's sufficiently portentous and warns of danger, they just use the soundtrack from Requiem for a Dream instead. So, Requiem for a Dream, uh, it's a story of addiction and it's a story of happiness which then turns to just hope, which turns to loss, which turns to ass to ass with a giant dildo the size of a bouncer's arm. That's a bit much for you guys this time of day, isn't it? I've noticed. I might try this again on drunk people at 10, and they'll be like, yes, Steve, ass to ass! Uh, so anyway, uh, so it ends with that. But at the beginning, they're all very happy. Uh, but this portentous music is playing the whole time. And you're sitting there going, this is, this is a film. They're all happy. They're selling the drugs, and everything's OK, and they're all happy. It'll be fine. And the music's going, they're not fine. <laughs> Stuff is coming, bad stuff. And you go, no, music, music, you're lying, music. Music, no, they're fine, everything's gonna be... F the music is not lying. It is a very, 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 very miserable film. Now, uh, the thing I remember most of all about this film was uh, it's the first time I'd been to the Odeon in Camden. And, uh, hello, as a guy down from Newcastle, it was very exciting for me to be at the Odeon in Camden. I thought, this is a very cultural bit of London. It's very, very creative. Um, and the weird thing was, at the end of this film, everybody sat through all of the credits. And I thought, what a cultured, cultured crowd. They've watched the whole of the credits. And then the credits finished, and they still didn't move. So I thought, wow, this is incredibly cultured. They're, they're kind of contemplating the film. So then I looked around. The entire cinema is full of people like this. And there they stayed for about five minutes. So I should say, uh, if you ever need to cheer yourself up, uh, the very best thing to do is go and see Requiem for a Dream and then spend the rest of the weekend in a flat with three women who keep spontaneously bursting into tears when they remember any bit of Requiem <laughs> for a Dream. Uh, and also, don't go and see Requiem for a Dream. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I, know that, I know that's more sharing than you were expected, but thank you very much for dealing with it. I've been Steve Cross. Finally, let's listen to an old friend of stand-up tragedy, the Superbard, telling us about what tragedy means to him. Previously on Stand-Up Tragedy, we've had many incarnations of the Superbards, 
hit show The Flood, which combines multimedia music and spoken word to tell the strange tale of the end of the world. But he's going to be doing something very different for us when he joins us on the stand-up tragedy stage. In fact, he's writing something completely new. We love it when performers decide to do something completely new at stand-up tragedy because that means that we won't know what to expect when they get up on our stage and do some tragedy. We like being in that position where we don't know what's going to happen next because that's the position that our audiences are in. But we do know that the people making that tragedy are some really, really talented people. So it's going to be really exciting what their tragic take of Christmas is. I love tragedy, um, but I love playing it sort of with the comedy as well. There's something so much more fun about that slight tragic comedy element uh, where you start off with a humorous character and then perhaps slightly bad things happen to him and it's quite sad um, so that's what my story is about tonight for me it's all about finding uh, the comedy that's sort of inherent in a character uh, this story was all about uh, a guy I saw in Brixton who was using a megaphone and, and shouting out loud um, and it just suddenly occurred to me what happens if he's actually right um, and there is something inherently tragic about him but there's also something a little bit funny about a man that always thinks he's right uh, when he's preaching about the end of the world uh, so yeah there's there's definitely some humour and some fun to be had there. I think the audience, uh, firstly, get to see something that may, that may have never seen before. Um, I often get that sort of response. Um, hopefully the audience just have a good time. That's that's really what we want, isn't it? That they, uh, they come and, OK, tragedies should touch them perhaps a little bit more than a stand-up night would. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't all have a good time and enjoy ourselves. So with only a week to go, the festive season is most definitely underway. And if you want to share some Christmas grievances before the night, remember to use the hashtag TragicChristmas and share them with us. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. The music was produced by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at radiojuan at yahoo.com. And our outro music was made by the Reactionaries and George Bruffley.